Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome, listeners. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I feel like we don't have to say where they're at. Obviously, we still have our intro that we have, right? We should probably go back to the intro and like redo it. We should. Well, you know what? I realized that we're, you know, as we approach November, now that we're recording this in October, this will be four years of the podcast, right? Yep, exactly right. So I guess, yeah, we should redo our intro. Hey, if listeners, if you have any tips on our intro, <laughs> let us know. If you don't like our music or you do like our music, oh, that's let true. Us know. We're always up for feedback. I feel we, like when yeah, I we listen, haven't changed it. I mean, when I listened to it, like it was like one of the first things we recorded, and I just feel like we just have such a different cadence now. So we just yeah. should just re-record it. But yeah, with that, you know, approaching four years. We have a lot of listeners in a lot of different states, and so we've been trying to kind of figure out how to, you know, talk about, obviously we talk about the federal law, but then we're very specific to California, so we are ecstatic to have our guest on today. Stacy. thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Can you give our listeners a bit of background, where you're from, what you do, so we could get started with this conversation? Because I'm very excited. (laughs) Absolutely. So I have a practice in North Carolina. I practice statewide from Murphy to Manio. And we are the largest firm in North Carolina. That being said, not firm total, but it does special education <laughs> yeah, law. Yeah. You know, that being said, we have five attorneys okay, and two paralegals. So it's not huge, but for North Carolina, it's, you know, we're definitely growing and looking for another attorney to join us. So there's a lot of work to be done and um, mm-hmm. we're excited to be able to do it. I am a second career lawyer. So I was in education for 19 years before I went to law school from a teacher to an administrator. Wow. I said it, I've worn every hat at the IEP table except speech therapist, I think, you know, so, yeah. um, and so <laughs> I definitely like had that background and baseline knowledge going into law school and practicing. When I got out of law school, I took a job. I thought because I'd been a principal that I really wanted to work like on the school side until I worked on the school side and went to an IEP meeting and realized that my desire for fairness and balance of power like was much stronger than any other desire to represent schools. And so I left and had children getting ready to go to college and left a, a salary job and started my own firm. And then the rest is history. So it's, we've really been able to make, I think, a, you know, a big difference, especially in the area of inclusion in North Carolina. So I'm very passionate about Fan, that. Fantastic. Well, when you say you've been in all seats of that IEP table, you really mean it, it going from even being on the side of the school district attorney, because, you know, that's one thing that like, you know, I have some experience in the classroom, nowhere near as much as yours and most people, but, you know, you have that experience of kind of knowing what schools are saying as, you know, as they plan for these IEPs. So I'm sure it makes it so beneficial for your clients to be able to see it from that side too. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, so even as an LEA rep, as a parent, as a teacher, as a school attorney, you know, so it's definitely, it's very interesting now to like to be a part on this side and being able to advise parents. But I do think it helps and unique experience that I have. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that is a pretty big firm. California has quite a few special education attorneys compared to other states. And that's a pretty big sized firm. We have some firms that have like five, you know, up to 10, like, and those have been the ones that have been around since special education law was created, right? But it's still, you know, a very much a solo practitioner kind of area for some of the ones that are near and around us. And, you know, for a while, Amanda and I were the only ones that weren't like a parent to a child with special needs, which is something that we would see when we were in our special education clinic at our law school. You know, a lot of parents were attorneys and then they had a child and then you know, they got thrown into the world of IEPs. And then we've also noticed the trend like after Amanda and I, like the next generation, if you will, of kiddos that went to law school because their own sibling had some type of unique need and had an IEP. And so then they realized that this is an area of the law. And so it's really, I love knowing how you got to special education. And people ask Amanda and I that all the time as well. And, you know, life experiences completely play in. It's just such a different area of the law, right? It's not like your typical personal injury or anything like that. It's like a niche area. Like, you know, we have a lot of law students that work for us and have worked for us. We have a lot of like law clerks and interns and whatnot. And, you know, I think the one thing that you know we try to instill in them is, you know, look, it doesn't necessarily come down to, you know, the black and white case law or the statute, like other areas of law, because even if you have a case law on point, even if you have something 100% on point, it's not because it's individualized. And, you know, that's one of the things we love about special education law, besides, you know, loving working with our clients, having the impact we do, but being able to be creative and think outside the box, not just at IEP meetings of, you know, what are things that we haven't tried? What are things that we haven't explored? But in remedies for due process as well. And I do think that it kind of sets us apart a little bit, you know, and we love being able to be creative like that. What do you see in North Carolina in terms of what families are looking for, what they're fighting for? So I would say that families, when we first started practicing, there was definitely almost no inclusion in North Carolina. It was very hard to come by. And so we've had a lot of cases, been fortunate to have been successful in a lot of those cases to be able to have the districts, especially the bigger districts that we fight against the most, realize that this is a losing battle. We had Ann Turnbull was one of our experts and she's like one of the preeminent special education professors, you know, wrote this textbook. And she, I remember testifying, she said, you know, the inclusion train has left the station. She's like, you might as well get on board, right. you know, and right. she's like, whatever you think you're doing, trying to hold this back, it's gone, you know? And so, and I thought that was really like, once you litigate an inclusion case and you realize all of the research that's, that supports inclusion, that there's no research in right. existence right. to say that, you know, right. that salvation is better. I mean, shocking. Okay. But 
because it's so contrary to the way that the institutional dynamics of our school, you know, and so why we still have these segregated classrooms. But once you learn that, it's just, it's a powerful argument, you know, to be able to put forward. So, you know, those are in a lot of ways my favorite cases to do because I just see what the impact is on that individual child of being able to change. And not just that child, but all the children that are in the class, all the non-disabled peers that he comes in contact Uh with. You know, so that's probably like a lot of what our case, of course, you know, we have the tuition reimbursement, those kind of cases too. But in terms of like really trying to make law in an area where there isn't a lot of law in North Carolina, but well, in the fourth circuit, the Hartman case, which I think is from 1991, was like the last big case on inclusion. Yeah. So we have a case in the fourth that's before the fourth circuit now on inclusion. So we'll... We'll see if it doesn't settle, we'll be getting a, a newer Fourth Circuit decision. Right. Wow. That'll right. be really interesting to see how that goes. So in California, we have the majority of our cases that settle. We don't, particularly in our practice, we don't really go to hearing. But a lot of other attorneys don't as well for the, the way that we have it set up in our Office of Administrative Hearings, which is a very informal sector of the state court. How is it set up in North Carolina and what's kind of demographic of how you handle due process cases over there. So, so our law firm litigates a lot. Okay. So we kind of come down to, if you're entitled to a free appropriate public education, but you have to pay an attorney to go to an IP meeting to get it, it actually wasn't free. And so we do a lot with litigation because of being able to get attorney's fees for our parents. And I would say, 90, 95% of our cases settle. Right? So that's great. But the ones that don't settle are the ones where they, which are these areas where they don't, they're not ready to give. And so that's where the inclusion cases in the beginning in 2015 and 2016, even in 2017, there was a lot of fight. Those cases went to hearing. And unfortunately, we are also in the Office of Administrative Hearings, but it is very formal. We have to have expert witnesses. We have an incredible amount of discovery and emotions practice. It can end up being extremely expensive just to get to the first tier. And we're a two-tier state. And so what it's trying to find that balance between something that's cost prohibitive, you know, to parents. Right, right. 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 And then, you know, versus also wanting to bring these cases, you know, and to make sure that the cost is not a barrier to a family being able to move forward. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely say that when we're fighting for inclusion, especially full inclusion, that is where we get the biggest pushback. And, you know, it's a conversation that we end up having to have with our clients of, look, you know, we're happy to take this and we're happy to fight the good fight. But you could be doing this for three, four, five, six, seven years and still not get 100%. So is there a creative way that we can, you know, we've had a number of cases where we've started, you know, let's work our way up to 100% full inclusion because, you know, maybe in some cases 50% and moving up as the child does well because we know they're going to do well is better than waiting five years because if they're continuing to be in a segregated classroom for five more years while we litigate, You know, it's going to be even more challenging for them. But, you know, we always go back to the cases where the parents are fighting for a small amount of reimbursement because of an LRE case as early as preschool. And it ends up with millions of dollars in attorney's fees and the parents were fighting over $2,000. You know, it's really cost prohibitive for even families that can't afford it. They shouldn't have to pay hundreds of thousands. 
dollars. Yeah, I think that's true. And one thing that California does that North Carolina districts do not is place students in non-public schools if they can't meet their needs, if they can't right. provide those. Right. So they appear from the case law, it appears that there's much more adherence to the law, like on that that aspect of the law in California than there than there is in North Carolina. Because well, they so, don't want to pay, right? So it's like, oh, okay, well, I don't want to pay so for a non-public school. So let's, you know, see what we can, yeah. It's very interesting to kind of see, right, the case law. And I think that that's what people, you know, we have the federal law, and then there are certain aspects of it that are gray, for lack of a better term. Uh-huh. The the state itself, or as Stacey, you had referenced, like the Fourth Circuit, we're in the Ninth Circuit. And, you know, there, we're a heavily populated state. And so California has had a lot, but Fourth, you know, the Ninth Circuit includes like Hawaii and things like that. And so it's just like, you get different states going up the Court of Appeals and things like that. But the case law is, it's very specific. Stacy could use Ninth Circuit, it's persuasive, but the Fourth Circuit really is the law of the land, if you will. So when she's talking about, okay, well, we're, our, our last inclusion case was 91, like ours could have been 2010, right? Like, and so we have a different set of facts and not every single case is going to fit the facts. So then you get the judge giving their say on it, and then you have to try to use your facts. It's this is why we are attorneys. We go down these rabbit holes. Re- yeah, I find it really interesting that you guys have office administrative hearings, but you have full discovery and everything. Yeah. We do not have discovery in California. We have, you know, it, we call it the wild, wild west, because even though we have a rules of evidence, our judges don't seem to follow the rules of evidence. So you never know what you're going to get when you go to hearing. Wow. Yeah. So our judges are very strict on that. And so there's a lot, you know, hearsay, anything from the trying to get the educational record in it's, um, and we, we get all the emails, we have all of their text messages. I mean, you can, it's a, the discovery process is intense. They take depositions of the parents. Oh, wow. I'm not sure wow. the parents are, you know, gonna, what, what insight they're going to give, but, but right, right, depositions, right. I mean, and then we always have to have expert testimony, the parent, because in North Carolina, the, the burden remains on the parents. Right. And we have right. state law that says the decisions of school districts are presumed to be correct. So, wow. oh my God. Yeah. Wow. So you're not even like starting on the 50 yard line. Right. 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 right, right, right. You're back in the, you know, the end zone of the other team and you have to get it all the way, you know, across. So, and our due process hearings in North Carolina, like the shortest one that I've had that was a full due process hearing, I think was seven days. And then the longest was 29. My face, my judge. That's crazy. Longer than murder trials. I mean, it's it's insane. That's insane because I've had RTC cases where we've, you know, we end up settling, but we get to the point where at the PhD, the parent conference, and we try to ask for like four days and we get opposing counsels and judges that are like, oh my God, that is way too long. It's like four days. So like the amount of time you guys are saying, it seems crazy to me. So it's so interesting. And this is why we love having attorneys like you on to really showcase to our listeners how different it is across jurisdictions. Even though we have the same federal law, it's interpreted in so many different ways. Yeah. And Amanda, I would say to add just as an example of what you were saying of how long things can get tied up in litigation is that my case that's in front of the Fourth Circuit yeah. started in 2014. 
See, wow. wait. So right. fortunately, that child, the parents have put him in a private Montessori school. Fortunately. And included. Yeah. But if they had not had that as an option, like right. that, this is where we would still be. You know, he'd be in right. high school and it started wow. in elementary. Right. So, so it, you know, it's definitely can be. I So I appreciate much saying, trying to find creative solutions that can move the ball forward, you know, even if it's not all the way where you want it to be. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know what, there are some school districts that are willing to work and others that are just, I mean, it's crazy to me how I can go to one IEP meeting with one team and say, you know, I know that you've proposed this special day class, but you know, this is a five-year-old. I really think we got to give them a chance. You know, let's figure out a way to do you know, at least 50% of the time and we can increase it over time as they go. But then I go to another IEP team where the needs are very similar. The data is very similar. And the team wants to have this generalized statement of, we just don't see how they could have any benefit from being in general education. I'm in due process right now with a case, a high school student who's been in general education for most of her educational career. A middle school decided no, we think she should be in, you know, the SDC classes. Mom decided to try it. It didn't work. And now we're fighting over whether or not this girl, who's always been in general education, who is super social, should be in general education for classes. And they're trying to say, no, we just don't. And, and there's no individualized response that we get a lot. We just get the same generalized answer. We don't see that they could benefit so we're just going to say no, rather than, look, there's these examples and there's these situations, you know, behavior we understand, but, you know, so we can go across one district to another and get such vast different answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we find it, you know, so our law firm, our office is in the triangle of North Carolina. So definitely the, one of the largest, you know, most metropolitan educated, we have Duke and UNC, we have lots of big universities mm-hmm. here. So, yeah. so there's a lot of you know, what happens here can look very different than what happened in the more rural areas. And I'm sure it's the same for you guys as well. Oh, I bet. Yeah, Um, no, I mean, just even with COVID, right, in terms of like, some of the Orange County schools getting kids tablets in their hands and Wi-Fi if they needed it, as opposed to you're going out, you know, towards uh, Menifee and things like that, and more the rural areas and you know, kids went without services, just period, you know, they, they couldn't even get them Wi-Fi, right? And so, yeah, same here, you know, just even from, like Amanda said, one district to another, just it's all top down. So if you have somebody, you know, and you know, this just being in all the different roles that that is the director that, you know, believes in X, Y, and Z, or even the principal at one of the schools. Like Uh I've seen principals just push things forward. I mean, we say this all the time, you know, most of the time the teachers are the ones that need the actual support, but they're afraid to say anything. And so then you're sitting there trying to advocate for the teacher and for the student. Uh And, you know, they're told you have to say no to this for whatever reason. And then, you know, we bring a case forward and then it's, you know, the, the higher ups decide, okay, well, yeah, we can move some stuff around, right. but, but that's if we're involved and, and the child is in a safe environment. And that's not the case for a majority of the clients we service through our nonprofit, you know, they're stuck where they're at until we find a solution. And for your case, yeah. like, thankfully the parents could place in a private placement Otherwise, you're still. I can't even imagine what that would have looked like. And I'm sure you've had cases where you're still like 
advocate, or you know, that you're still in litigation, but then the child, and so then it's like building your case, and then you know, the district's maybe skewing something, you know, like oh, it just yeah, headaches. that's absolutely what happens. So then all of a sudden you're in litigation, and they're just continuing to collect data, but data to show that like to work against you, right? Right, and right. they've got the child, like there's right. nothing that you can do about it, right? Yeah, yeah, they have full control over the data. And they have full control over continuing to have IEP meetings where they say, oh, look, see, yes, we were right. They're not doing well. Or, you know, hey, they're doing well only because of this, you know, self-contained classroom that has, look at all these things, you know, the whole sales pitch of look at all the things that are in these classes. And, you know, why would you want to go somewhere else where we have to start from scratch? It's like, you know, what a concept that we, you know, want a child to be in the least restrictive environment, you know, just for the hell of it, you know? <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. So it's very interesting that we're having very similar issues <laughs> and it's uh-huh. just the way in which we are able to find solutions. So do you find that, I mean, you are able to settle a majority of the cases? I, I think here in California, OAH, maybe the last time this was more than a few years ago in 2017, I think the statistic was like, OAH heard about 100 cases because the majority of the cases would settle. So that was like a high rate. It was like anywhere from like 85 to like 90% of like cases that were filed were actually settled. Is that like a similar kind of because of how litigation works in in your state? Is that kind of similar? Is it different? No, it's definitely the same. So okay. there, I mean, with our firm, like I said, 90 to 95% of the cases settle. Right. The, but the ones that don't settle is when you're, you've are you got a novel issue and something that everybody's digging their heels in on. So, yeah. you know, most of the time you have a dyslexia case, that case falls down. You know, that's clear. So we're not, but you have seclusion and restraint, you know, might go to hearing on that. If we've got a program designed around use the use of seclusion and restraint, right. you know, if what inclusion was that it's less that now, but, okay. but when I go to other districts that haven't been sued on inclusion before they're they fight. Cause they're like, are you kidding me? Right. He has down syndrome. You want him like in a regular class? And I'm like, yeah, I do. You yeah. know, like, yeah, yeah I do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we're actually going to, we're, we're going to go to, you know, we'll go to the mat on this. You know? right. so, yeah. Yeah. That is so I, I wanted to ask about, you mentioned that your school districts generally do not put kids in non-public schools. Is that because there aren't that many non-public schools or like they just don't care that that's the requirement under the continuum? What do you see as the reason for that? I think that there have been so few attorneys that represent parents in North Carolina for so long that the stat, so parents would go to OAH and speak in front of the judges, but it was a pro se parent represented, you know, by a team of, you know, defense Mm -hmm. lawyers. And so they just created, they wrote kind of the book for the OAH judges for a long time, you know, uh, not because that's all that they heard. Those were the only cohesive legal arguments that they heard. And recently in 2016, we had a new judge that came to OAH that has actually practiced in special education law before like okay. coming on the bench. Yeah, and yeah. so it's really made a difference. I mean, she doesn't find in parents' favor all the time by a long shot, but course, she yeah. understands. She at least, you know, she doesn't say, this is alphabet soup to me. You're going to like, I've had a judge say, you know, like, so she doesn't say anything like that. And, you know, and so it's actually feels like a more 
like a fair place to be able to take it in front of an informed you know, person to be able to make that decision. So I do think it's interesting, the differences that we have. And as far as the private placements, we have private schools, but they do not, they don't want to work with parents' attorneys. You know, to be able to, I mean, they've got a wait list of other kids. Right. They don't want all their records subpoenaed. They don't want all of, you know, they, oh, right. And yeah. so where I've heard that in other states, it's a much more collaborative relationship. Right. And because they know that it helps for schools to be able to come. So even like California will place kids in therapeutic boarding schools when they need to. Right. Mm-mm. No, 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 no. Wow. Like, we, we don't do any of that. We wow. have nothing like that. I mean, it's still here. a fight sometimes. Wow. I just had an RTC case and it was just like so blatantly obvious to me and I just did not understand it. But no, yeah, it seems like it's a bit easier because we um, have the case law, you know, that has supported that. Uh, I was going to ask how many judges then are within your OAH? Since COVID, our OH judge pool has like opened up throughout the state. So we've gotten some Northern California judges, whereas in the past that wouldn't have necessarily happened because we were in person, right? They're not right. flying down. Even though I've, I just recently had a judge say, oh, I used to go up north and she was like a Southern California judge, like all the time. And I was like, really? Like, I know that, you know, there's a middle part of California that you guys probably go to. But so we have like a pool, like there's, I could name at least. 10 and I know we have way more than 10. Yeah, I think um, I want to say maybe like 40 or something. Maybe, yeah. There's a, a good amount. Yeah, how about yeah. you guys? So ours is much less, you know, yeah. as you would imagine. Like yeah. it's less, but, and there's probably about five that hear the cases, you know, on a oh, regular, like okay. on a semi regular wow. basis. And so, and one of those, I, to my not, I haven't looked at all of her decisions, but to my knowledge, I don't think it's ever found in favor of a parent. And so that wow. that's really hard, right? Because that judge serves, um, you know, a part of the state. Absolutely. And so it's really difficult to want to bring cases, you know, like, you know, you just know kind of what the track record, you know, right. obviously I'm sure she right. looks, I'm sure she looks at every case, I'm like, sure. you know, with open eyes, like when she gets it, but it's difficult when you're looking at the track record. Absolutely. And right. right. And the other thing that because we're the two-tier state, we are reviewed, the judge's decisions are then often reviewed by non-lawyers. Oh. So we have our most prolific state hearing review officer is a retired professor who was a professor teaching school administrators. Oh. Interesting. What? So many decisions in parents' favor that then are overturned, you know, and it's just a difficult process, right? Because you've got, you know, we we have this elaborate first-tier system with the discovery and the motions and all those things. And then you go to have it reviewed, and then that becomes the state-level decision, right, on appeal in federal court. Right, right. Wow. I could see, I mean, I guess I could see how that, like, a non-attorney, but, like, so much of what we do is intricate, right? In terms of like understanding of the law. And, you know, here in California, we have a lot, and we've discussed this, you know, there's like advocates who have no legal training whatsoever. And up for a period of time, actually, I think until about 2017, you know, finally the attorney general came out and was like, attorney advocates cannot bring due process hearings because they were before. And it's like, you know, when the district has opposing counsel that does SPED and workers' comp and all these other different types of areas of the law, like, they're hearing skills 
are going to be that which is way more than an advocate that's not an oh, attorney, well, and they, just like in and general. They even have large firms with almost unlimited resources and right. the unlimited resources right. of the district right. to be able to prep for a hearing very different than our, you know, solo and two attorney law firms where you basically like for us, if we go to a hearing, we basically have to drop everything you know, right. to prep because it is so time consuming. And that's even without discovery. So I can't even imagine how small firms, you know, even you guys with five attorneys, that's still oh. considered small for doing oh. seven plus days of litigation with discovery. Right. I can't even imagine. It is really intense. And, you know, and you, of course, you know that that's how we ended up not being able to get expert fees paid, you know, in, in right. because of the, a non-attorney advocate, you know, bringing a case, you know, and so it is difficult because those cases that get decided, they become the law, right? you know, and so when they're decided in the school district's favor, because you have someone who's not trained on the other side, like it doesn't matter, you right. know, that, that like the law is the law then right. at that point and the school attorneys are citing to it you know, going forward. So that's always my fear at each step is I just don't want to make bad law. Like, right. I know I may not win everything, yeah, yeah. but I just don't want to make bad law. And especially where we are, because there's not a lot of law, right? you know, I mean, we are always looking at the Ninth Circuit. We're looking right. at California because you guys, you know, it's, it's a lot more it's parent friendly, you know, in a lot yeah. of, in a lot yeah. of the decisions that come out. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's just well, so interesting. Say one thing that's really interesting is the Ninth Circuit is pretty parent friendly, but on OAH is very not parent friendly. Like these cases are so often getting overturned in the Ninth Circuit, and it's parents and their attorneys fighting all that way to the Ninth Circuit, having to deal with these appeals to get there. That is, you know, fortunately creating good law. And then obviously there's other states in the Ninth Circuit, but unfortunately, you know, if we're not dealing with a situation where we think we can get all the way to the Ninth Circuit, or the parent can't afford it, or you know, we just don't have the resources to do it. We're having to think about what are our OH judges doing? And it's a crapshoot either way. Like it sounds like it's a crapshoot for you guys too, but then to put on the added layer of, and and we do the same thing of looking at the judge's track record and saying like, look, I already have this hurdle that I have to overcome. And then to have this, like, it seems like an implicit bias (laughs) That, you know, you're going to just, you know, whatever. And, and, you know, maybe they just had parent-led, you know, cases. But I'm sure with the amount of cases that those judges see year to year, that's not the pattern. But that is very interesting that it's the non-attorney that, like, reviews it and then, you know, doesn't necessarily. And and I'm sure, you know, very educated. But, like, there are just, like, certain things. Like, if you're not in the world of special education, like, you're not going to necessarily understand the intricacies of, like, the law and, like, the general kind of like federal aspect of it. So, oh my goodness, you were, I mean, you were doing God's work for sure. And I think we could (laughs) talk to you for another hour and a half and not get bored. But if people had questions for you or they wanted to know more about your firm and what you guys are doing, how can they reach out to you? Oh, they're welcome to check our website. It's NC for North Carolina, GP for Gahagan Parody Law. So ncgplaw.com. And all of our contact information and everything is on the website. So, you know, we love to, I love giving presentations or talking just to help. I mean, I, I give presentations to teachers sometimes. Nice. I say, do the right thing. Put me, let me, let me go practice tax law, make a lot yeah. of money, like, yeah. put me out of business. That's yeah. fine. Nothing would make me happier. Like, let's just do it right. Same. From the 
beginning. So yeah, um, so yeah <laughs> I would I love, love to talk to any, you know, if anybody has questions or anybody would like to get in touch with us, that's the best way to do it. Excellent. We will put that information in the show notes. And Stacey, again, we were just so happy when Diane had um, told us, like, you know who you need to talk to? <laughs> She's like, you, th- these are your, pe-, you know, like Amanda said off air, like, you are our people. And it just, it kind of re-energizes us because as we have really gotten into this school year, you know, some of our kiddos started in August, so we're really in it with those cases, but some had started in September, so we're really into those first 30 days. It's just, I don't know about you, but it has just been such a trip, like this school year, more so than last. And I'm not sure, is your state, did they rush to that back to in-person for for this year? And no. They did, yeah. We're all back in person. And I think what's happening is that everybody's now starting to see, like, what the impact was, right? Right. And all the, like, I mean, everybody's coming up for air a little bit. Not too deep of the air because of the Delta variant, right? Like right, right. not taking yeah. very deep breath, but a little deep breath. Yeah. You know, and what they're finding is, you know, that how far how much their children lost yep. like during that time. Yeah. And it's terrible. My, and so we have lot we are inundated yes. right now, yeah. right, with calls. So yeah. No, so are we and we're just wishing you all the luck and good vibes. Yeah, just because it's this and you know, Amanda and I have been doing this, um, for about 10 years a piece and it's just unlike anything and so to to hear you know the the struggle being real everywhere yeah. is, is comforting oh, to say the least yeah when you get through your circuit case come back we'd love to have you come on and talk I hope more it settles about- I hope it settles but yeah, if it doesn't, I, come on back yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, either way, we'd love to hear more. I'm sure our listeners, you know, that's one thing that sometimes they like to hear is like these real world examples. Obviously, if your clients are comfortable, you don't have any names or anything, but sharing the story. Because I think that families really do benefit from, you know, this is the reason we were fighting for inclusion. This is, you know, what we were looking for. This is how the child was doing. You know, so we we love more information. We'd love you to share if you're able I definitely would. And I know my family would love to share too, because this has been a passion, you know, for them and they've, you know, sacrificed a lot to be able to continue with this lawsuit, even though they could have their child in a separate, you know, in a private school and were able to do that, but they're fighting for the other families that can't. So, yeah. Wonderful. I mean, bless them like serious, because that's, that's not, that's a lot, that's a lot to take on. So that's wonderful that that family's with that support for other families, you know, that they don't even know and that they'll touch and completely change the lives of forever. Stacy, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Listeners, yeah. we hope you enjoyed that episode as much as we did. We're going to cut it here and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.